Hey everybody, welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. I'm pretty excited today to bring you a conversation with Rebecca Wildbear. She's um, uh, a guide at Animus Valley Institute. She's a yoga teacher, and she's just written a new book called Wild Yoga. The subtitle is A Practice of Initiation, Veneration, and Advocacy for the Earth. I think you'll find our conversation pretty interesting, and it's a, it's a book um, that's more, much more than a book about yoga as we kind of commonly understand that word. So um, yeah, I, ho- I, hope, I hope you'll enjoy it. Um, just a couple things from my end as we get started here. I just got back from Israel, which was a fantastic trip. I brought my youngest daughter along, and um, most of the group was from Minneapolis, from a church in Minneapolis, and yeah, just feel really grateful to have another opportunity to lead this kind of experience, which I call pilgrimage. And um, yeah, and I'm already looking ahead. I don't have any more in 2023, but I hope to have at least one, possibly two, the following year. So be on the lookout for that. The way these groups um, often get started is there's sort of a core group that's interested and contacts me. Contacts me, and um, but most of the time, I open it up to other individuals. So if that's something that intrigues you and you are longing for that kind of experience or have some curiosity around that, I don't have anything posted on my website now, but you can send me an email. And I can at least get you on the list, and that way you can stay, stay informed. I have um, two upcoming things. Uh, oh, I better get my calendar. Um, at the end of the month, the end of March, I have a program here at the Dominican Center in Grand Rapids. So this is uh, March 24 and 25. This is a Friday night and a Saturday. I'm doing a program that I'm calling Dreamwork and the Soul. It's for those who, who are interested in dream work. And um, originally I, I had in mind, it would be a program for spiritual directors who are interested in how to listen to dreams and um, therapists or other people sort of in the helping field. But it's more than that. You can just come if you're interested in dreams or, or you have some curiosity around them. Or maybe you even have a dream journal and you're wondering, hey, how do I even begin to to um, have a relationship with with dreams. What are they? And that sort of thing. So two-day little workshop. I'm really looking forward to it. I love working with dreams. It's a big part of what I do in one-on-one guiding. Um, it's a big part of my training at Animus Valley Institute. And also, um, I work with dreams on my sort of wilderness programs. Not sort of. They are wilderness <laughs> programs. Um, so anyway, March 24 and 25, it's not online. This is an in-person kind of thing. Uh, cause a few people sent me a message and asked me about that. And the, uh, the other thing that's coming is I'm going to do a retreat here in Michigan at the end of June. And once again, I got to look at my calendar to make sure I give you the right dates. It's on my website. I'm just now putting it together, but June 21 to 25. So this will, it'll start on a Wednesday night and then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and we'll return on Sunday. That's the plan. Um, I do them about an hour north of, of Grand Rapids at a fantastic place, uh, a kind of retreat center, artist center that has backs up to some federal land and, and he himself has 20 acres. 
this guy named Rob, and uh, really an, an amazing place to um, host uh, a retreat or a program. Um, it's called Wilderness Within. I believe that my, my intention so far is to include a one-day solo, one-day solo fast. Um, I did the same exact or a similar uh, program last year about this same time. So it includes, you know, practices, conversation, um, you know, some uh, shaping and guiding of the experience on the front end and after the solo, but right in the center will be a 24 hour uh, sort of in a fasted state kind of experience. So if that calls to you in some way, this is a great way to do it. Um, if you've never fasted, particularly outside in wild places, it's uh, an amazing experience. Um, it can take a couple different shapes and forms, but if that, I don't know, has been on your radar for a while and you want a, a way in, this is, I think, a great um, on-ramp. So you'll probably want to sign up for that early because I, I don't like these groups to get too big. So again, that's, that's on my website kentobson.com. So anyway, sorry for the, the long uh, advertisement here at the beginning. <laughs> Maybe just one more. Uh, I, I just had last night my first kind of patron-only Zoom. So if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know it's uh, supported by my patrons on patreon.com that make this thing happen and, and support on all kinds of different levels um, from a dollar on up. And I'm really, really grateful to this diverse community, which is actually all over the place, all over the world at this point. And I don't know, I'm, I'm humbled by that. But I also wanted to, um, I wanted there to be a kind of conversation happening with the patrons. So we had a, a group Zoom and it was amazing. So I'm going to do another one. So if you're a patron and you missed and you missed the last Zoom conversation, look for an email. It'll come through the uh, Patreon um, email, it'll come to your inbox, but it'll be through the Patreon site and for another link to the next Zoom group. Would love to see you there. And if you're not a patron and you want to be, well, not only do you support, help support the podcast, but you get to be a part of this um, Zoom group. So um, yeah, maybe that's all I want to say at this point. Special thanks to Rebecca, my guest, for coming on. Um, really grateful to her. And uh, she's been a guide for me. I've done a program with her. So it was, uh, uh, yeah, it was just a, an honor to, to, to do a kind of interview around the book and to explore the content of the book. And I think you'll find it interesting and I hope you'll pick up the book down the road. So, um, yeah, that's it for me. Enjoy. Well, Rebecca, Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really glad to dive in. Looking yeah. Um, how long have you been working on this book? Well, it's kind of my whole life in a way. If you look <laughs> at the stories are from everywhere. Um, I started writing a book over a decade ago called Wild Yoga, hmm. but that's not the book that ended up being finished, the finished book is Wild Yoga. I walk, wrote another manuscript entitled Wild Yoga and still that's not the manuscript we see. And in between, I wrote another book that wasn't Wild Yoga and then ultimately came back to writing Wild Yoga. Those are all unpublished. This is my first published book. But all of those, you know, seem like part of the journey of getting to this published book. 
but the last two years I've been working on it pretty intently, like full time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well done. Well, congratulations. It's a, it's an endeavor writing. (laughs) It's an ordeal. So yeah. What a, what a beautiful uh, book that you're bringing forth in the world. And um, okay. So I had a feeling that I would just give you some of my opening impressions and you can, uh, you can correct them if I'm, if I'm off base here, but my first impression was like, oh, this isn't really a book about yoga, at least not how I think common, commonly that word is used. And um, yeah, what's your feeling about that? Is it a book about yoga? Why did you call it wild yoga? Or I can say more about what I mean. Great, uh, great point. In many ways, I had thought about not calling the book wild yoga, because it might take some people away or make them think the book is smaller, you know, just about that than it is. But ultimately I decided to call it wild yoga because it, it that's what it is to me. And it, it kind of takes yoga back to the roots or like in our mainstream dominant culture. Now, the main idea of yoga is synonymous with yoga asana. So when people hear the word yoga, they don't say asana, but what it means is the, this physical practice of postures. And the way I see the physical practice of postures is important, but it's just one branch on the tree of yoga, just only one branch. There's so many other branches because yoga is about who we are at the deepest level and finding ourselves. And yoga is about how we are in relationship to everything else and knowing the other, the world so that we can be in relationship to it. So originally it was that larger body of study and there were many branches. And even though my yoga is not the same as ancient yoga, the concept of there being many branches to the tree beyond just the body postures, that is, I'm restoring that ancient concept and Mm -hmm. then invigorating it with what I've learned through various practices and spiritualities in my own life journey, what I've studied and what I've lived and my work with other people. Yeah. That, that, and that's the way it feels upon my, you know, I'm about halfway through cause I just got the book. So um, yeah, that's the feeling too, that it's, it's exploring something ancient and expansive and um, interconnected and not like a series of physical moves or exercises or something like that. Although I think you have something like 18 different postures, which isn't a ton anyway. Um, but that's like almost a, uh, it's not an addendum, but it's sort of like a PS at the end of each chapter. You actually have many other kinds of practices that people I think ordinarily wouldn't associate with yoga, but um, I can feel is just part of your expanded understanding here. And and at the same time, a, a more ancient understanding. That's what I'm hearing at least. Uh, oh yeah. And I want to, to mention one more thing. So if it's, if it's not about yoga is how people, you know, ordinarily use that word, my impression so far is that is that it's a book about relationships and and the cultivation of relationship period and the kind of art and craft of listening um in fact listening seems to be like the major like sort of bell the chime in in the background of the of the book so it, does that land with you is that true what i'm saying i i love how you just described that I, I commonly say it's a book about listening. Like the main practice of wild yoga is listening. Every every chapter is about listening in some form. And I love how you said though, that it's about relationships. I haven't heard that before. And I think that's absolutely true. 
Um, and it's about relationships with aspects of the world and ourselves that a lot of times we don't acknowledge exist. So it's, you know, a relationship with our body. Oh, I can have a relationship with my body. My body is a being in essence to listen to and commune with. Oh, nature, nature. I can have a relationship with nature and the conversation and there's an exchange. Oh, my heart, you know, as if we go through every chapter, oh, my ferocity, I can have a relationship with my ferocity or mm. my fierceness. I can have a relationship with trees or, or the capacity to love, or I can have a relationship to dreams and, and muse and the sacred mm. and the spirit and my ancestors. So yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love how you said that. I, yeah. call it, I call it, I've called it a practice of stretching our consciousness, but yeah. really it's stretching our consciousness so that we can be in relationship with all these others. Yeah. It's like an opening of consciousness to the reality of, of a relationship or something like that. Um, or the, the sort of co-emergence of relationship that happens when we open up and some, at least maybe that's one way of putting it. You know, I, um, I, I'll just give you a little bit of my, my background with yoga, um, which is, which, which will take about 30 seconds. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I've tried like yoga a few times in, in the way most people try it, which is you go into a studio, you get out a mat. Um, in my case, a white person, um, with expensive yoga pants on puts on some Eastern sounding music and lights a few candles. And, uh, and then there's a series of stretches and <laughs> something like that. And, and I have to be honest, I, the, my first experience, I did like it. I was like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't know the body works like this. I didn't, I didn't. And actually I didn't know it was so difficult. You know, it's like, uh, it's taxing and requires a kind of focus and, and relaxation. It's like this tension between action and, and relaxing and, but um, that was pretty much it, like the studio version of, of yoga until on one of your programs at Animus was the first time I ever did yoga outside. And it was, it was such an interesting experience for me because it wasn't very serious. That was my first feeling about it. It's like, oh, there's, this is kind of playful. This isn't like where we need to talk in special spiritual voices and hushed tones, but it's like, oh, there's a kind of vibrancy and joy and almost like I felt like a kid. That's maybe the first thing I want to say. I felt like a kid, like, oh, I can just roll around on the ground and um, put my belly on the ground. And, and, and some of what I remember from this experience was just an invitation to be in relationship again with the actual land. And I can remember very vivid things about it. Like there were these little willow um, shoots that were kind of a little bit annoying. And there were some uh, ants crawling on me because I didn't have a yoga mat. And, and, and there was a kind of awareness that I was in the presence of a, of a mighty mountain. I mean, this was like at 9,000 feet um, in Colorado. So it's like, um, and I could feel the aliveness I guess in the in-between space between my own body and the actual land, like the place that I was, it wasn't abstracted out somewhere else, you know, it was, mm -hmm. so it was kind of shocking and, um, and I loved it. And like each morning I wanted more of it, you know, it's like, oh, I hope we do this kind of play again. So yeah, maybe you want to comment on that or, or, or um, maybe talk a little bit about play and imagination as it, as it plays into the, to your understanding of wild yoga. 
it's it's so great that you're interviewing me and you've actually experienced uh, the physical practice that I've guided people through. That's an uncommon uh, experience. I often just refer people to my video online mm -hmm. on my website if they want to see the practice, but the fact that you did it actually outside, and I love your comparison to uh, yoga in a class versus the yoga outside and that that is play and imagination are great words to bring into it i i often work with people like you on quests and different experiences sometimes they they haven't come to do a, a yoga retreat necessarily and, and and people have sometimes aversion to the idea like what you know that's yoga that's not really something i'm interested in but i might say well are you interested in your body are you interested in inhabiting it and Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's really what the practices are trying to do is to take us into the physical, to, into our physical body in a way that maybe we haven't been before. Like maybe if, even if you're an athlete, you know, that's a way of being embodied, right? You're used to running or doing your sport, or if you do a lot of outdoor activities and you're used to, you know, being in your body that way, this is a kind of dials it down to a little bit slower, a little bit simpler, taking us back to our younger self and just simple movements and experience almost like feeling our body as, as a sacred being, like almost mm. like imagining, like we've just entered it again for the first time. And like, can I just, without all the preconceptions of what my body can or can't do or what it is, can I just enter it and kind of like a, with a child mindset, present centered innocence and curiosity and, and just explore how it moves and how I feel when it makes contact with the mm. world. And, and there is a lot of imagination involved too. When we're actually out in the wild nature, which is great because there, you know, there's the physical experience is already happening. And particularly when we're um, not outside, I often call the outside in us to, mm -hmm. to come out. But uh, there's a lot of experiences, as you know, in the different chapters on my book, I would call them imagination practices related to the different themes of each chapter. In our body, that imagination is key to everything, to knowing ourselves and having a relationship with the world, and certainly to stretching our consciousness and having a relationship with our bodies and all these other aspects of life that sometimes people don't even realize it's possible to have a relationship with. Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, can you give us some practices like um, that might surprise people? Like here they are reading along at the and they're hearing a bit about your story, which we can come to in a minute. Um, yeah, but what kinds of practices that might surprise people that? Well, sometimes for the body practices, for example, I say, lie down on your mat and just see how your body naturally wants to move. Mm. I mean, asana was first created to just try to give a, give our creativity a jump start, right? To see mm. what other yogis have done and to try out those poses and see how that feels. But ultimately, if we're in the flow of our yoga, it's a little bit dancey. It can be a little dancey or it can be stillness. Um, sometimes I have a practice that's like lie down and don't move until your body wants to until and then move the way it wants to. Some of us who've been really busy, we might lie down for quite a while before it wants to move. But that's OK. Um, if you have the space, it's trying to find that like authentic desire to engage or move our body. That's not not forced or habitual. Yeah. Yeah. And I. I've done this very thing that you're describing it's, and it's quite a different practice for someone like me. Like I, well, I like sports, like you were saying before, and, and I do all kinds of things and ski and bike and run and, but they're all that have the same kind of forceful forward motion, you know, 
we're going to suffer for uh, an X amount of time. So just to lie down without expectation and wonder how the body wants to move is, is surprising. And um, for me, it creates a, like a little void, like, oh, which can feel a little frightening in a way, like, oh, this, what am I consenting to? You know, what, what, what's, what's opening here? And when the, when the, I don't know what it is about, I want to ask you something about masculine and feminine in a second, but I don't know what it is about uh, um, this forward motion that I'm describing that, that, I don't know, it pushes, it pushes against that orientation when you're, le when you're sort of letting go and, and allowing the, your body to lead the way, I guess, instead of the mind and what it's decided it's going to do outside or, or inside for that matter. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was the conversation I had too, with when I had cancer, which was, I call that my introduction to wild yoga, where I was sort of woken up to all the ways that I would force my body. And I, I was excited about all those things. So I didn't, mm -hmm. it didn't really feel like, like I was forcing it because I, I wanted to do those things, but um, it was still a, a like pushing my body to do things rather than listening. And when I was ill, I was forced to stop the doing, to, mm -hmm. to be still more often and to listen. And that's where things began to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe um, since you talked a bit about it in the book, I, I'd love to know a little bit about, a little bit more about cancer and where it was in your body and how that relates to what later becomes like a major sort of theme in your own awakening and practice that has to do with the heart. So um, yeah, maybe tell us just a little bit about, about that journey. Yeah, I was uh, in my senior year of college and um, I was definitely like an achiever on different levels, editor of the newspaper, resident assistant, a student leader on campus. And uh, there was a, there was a way um, I, I got ill right before, right at the end of the first semester of my senior year. And um, ultimately it was a cough that wouldn't go away. And I didn't know, you know, I didn't really know. I just thought, you know, I went to the doctor and they said, well, you're probably on the, it would get better when I rested, not completely go away, but get better. So my doctor had thought when I went home for Thanksgiving break that, oh, you, you were sick, but you're probably getting better. And then ultimately I went back to school, continued working, came back for Christmas break in early January, I still had the cough. So I went back to the doctor and he, you know, he, he posited cancer as one possibility and something in me like immediately knew this, that's probably what it was. And there was mm -hmm. a CAT scan a couple of weeks later that confirmed that's what it was in a section biopsy. And I stayed in school um, in my college for the last semester, since I was such a high achiever, I could just lower my course load to three courses and still graduate. So um, I, and I stopped all my other activities and that was a really different experience for me being somebody that was always so engaged and, and, you know, doing to just have three classes and nothing else was uh, it, it was like me sitting with myself more and who am I? And, and also it, it really threw into the mix, this possibility of death, which as a young 21 year old, always pretty healthy person. I had never, encountered because I, I just always thought I could just push it quite some time. I never saw my death anywhere in the imminent future. Hmm. And, you know, given the cancer, the odds were that they said there was a one third chance that the chemo and radiation would work, meaning a two third chance hmm. I could die in an alternate wow. procedure that increased your odds slightly. 
but is very, but that there was also a mortality rate with that. So it was, you know, the odds were greater that I wasn't going to live hmm. than that I was. So I was made to sit with what if these are your last days here on yeah. earth? And it, it just really reoriented my entire focus. I started to see things in the world that I didn't see before, like even little things like leaves and flowers and wind and just, just details of things and feeling the spirit or the soul of things. And there was a way too that um, I had always loved nature. So that wasn't really shocking. And I had always perceived nature as kind of like godlike, like, because that was the one thing where I felt the sacred. But when I had sick, when I was sick, something shifted inside me and I could feel the sacred actually present inside me. I, I call this my first soul encounter because um, it's there's something mysterious in me that is sacred and I want to know it more. You know, I don't know it, but it's I, I can I'm absolutely certain it's here. It's so palpable. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't um, imaginative, which I know is often a main window of soul. It was very keen aesthetic. But it was a sense almost like there was a um an inward, like a downward and inward dark, like there was a this whole world of possibility within me mm. that I I didn't quite know what it was, but I was it was like there. Mm. And so it it just opened that for me. And then nothing would ever be the same after that. It just reoriented what what I considered important, mm. like grades or achievements were no longer nearly like important to me as they were before. Mm -hmm. And I was really, I'd always been seeking God. I was a philosophy, religious studies major. So mm -hmm. I, in my journal before cancer is full of, do you exist God? I was raised <laughs> Catholic, okay. but when I went to college, I was, I became more, you know, like, I don't really know. Mm -hmm. And so I'm more of an experiencer rather than a believer. And so mm -hmm. I was always like, if you exist, show me. I mean, I constantly said that. So I almost feel like I called my cancer in mm. <laughs> because it mm -hmm. was an experience by which I felt clearly sure. I didn't quite know what, what the sacred was. I couldn't define it as inside or outside or what it is, but it is real because it's so palpable mm. and it, that changed everything. So I, I became on a journey after I got well to try and stay connected to that and continue the conversation but as you know, like I, I tried many, many different religions and, and different things would go to services or, or spiritual retreats and nothing really kind of like really did it for me. I mean, other than the wilderness, I just, I was a wilderness guide in my twenties and I worked for Outward Bound and being in the wilderness is where I felt the sacred, but I could never, you know, I was a nature mystic, but I could never quite feel the level of connection that I felt while I was ill. Um, and then when I started doing animus programs, when I was 29, that's when like something just opened back up for me. And I felt like this conversation that had been on pause could finally continue. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. And that was uh, even right from the first chapter, you you're talking about um, being in the wild and, and, and fasting and um Maybe you want to say a bit about about fasting because I think I think anyone who picks up the book, which I hope they do, they'll bump into it right away. Like, oh, what's a what's a vision fast, and what was going on there, and what's the purpose of such a thing, and is this another version of what you would call wild yoga? 
Yeah, the fasting is um, one of the ways we listen. Like, you know, hmm. you said, um, a wild yoga is all about ways to listen and deepen our relationship with nature. Um, there's all sorts of levels, just going out to nature without your iPod and your iPhone and trying to empty your mind of all your thoughts and agenda and just really being with the others and looking around and listening. That's like just a first level, like mm-hmm. absolutely way to begin. And, and we can have a conversation anytime without necessarily having to fast, but a fast is a really potent ceremony by which we're really making ourselves vulnerable to the natural world and to the mystery of all these others because not eating is weakening our ego it's weakening our everyday way of operating in a little in a way when we fast we become a little closer to death our ego isn't isn't alive in the way it was before it's not being nourished and so something else is being nourished something else that usually doesn't get seen or noticed some other way some other part of us that can receive and listen to the world and be less in motion, be quieter, be more attentive. We're altered, you know, plant medicines, which I know are big right now, plant medicine healing ceremonies. Mm. Uh, you know, fasting is similar to that, to altering us like that, but those plant medicines, you know, that, which it can be great. They, they come on really fast and take people really far, usually for a very finite amount of time. And then the end, it's, yeah. almost, it's quite intense and fasting, you know, happens over a few days. So it comes on a lot slower, the altered state, and mm-hmm. then it lasts a lot longer. So it can give you a chance to receive the things that are happening more fully. And I think also can be helpful in the reintegration process, which a big part of questing isn't, isn't just the quest itself. It's the visions that we receive while we're out there that give us direction for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. So when we go slow enough, we can track what's happening and uh, deepen your conversation with the natural world and even encounter your soul or sacred purpose, you know, why you're here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Um, yeah. Sometimes I like to think about fasting as, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a, this is a way of just simply defining it, but this kind of self emptying or subtraction rather than flooding, you know, like with, with um, uh, plant medicines, it floods the ego. And that's very interesting, but, um, yeah, with fasting, it's like a, a weaning off. That's how it feels to me, a weaning off of, of our, of our own egoic way of looking at the world and all of our, our attachments and, and it puts pressure and it's like kind of slow pressure and it sort of builds over time. At least that's my, my sort of experience with it. Um, yeah, so I, I want to, um, I don't want to jump, you know, jump all over the place, but I'm going to start anyway. I wanted to read you something. Okay. This is always dangerous when you read an author their own work. That that's what happens to me when somebody reads me something I wrote. I think, wait, did I write that, or <laughs> is, is that even true anymore? I, I don't know. Um, but I want to read you something because I want to talk a little bit about the masculine, and feminine stuff here. So here's a, a a couple sentences. Most people suppress the feminine. Naming her seems necessary, so we remember how precious she is. Listening to the wisdom of our bodies and the earth is archetypally feminine, as are many of the practices of wild yoga. These practices are as necessary for men as they are for women. An essential aspect of the healthy masculine is reverence and respect for the feminine. Healthy cultures honor the feminine. And the practice of wild 
yoga, the practices of wild yoga are valuable for every human, whether whatever their sex or gender, the earth needs all of us to listen. Well, here's that word, listen again. Um, yes. I want to ask you about that. So uh, what do you mean by archetypally feminine? And are, do you think about most of the practices and invitations in this book largely in that sphere or is it um does it move around does it shift where does the masculine fit in i just want to have a i mean this is more just what i'm personally interested in what is what do we mean by feminine what do we mean by the sacred feminine or the sacred masculine and how are they at play and dancing and something like that oh i i love i love this question and that you caught the the this this thread that's woven throughout my book it's not like a chapter title but it's 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 a thread and it it's really significant and important to me so much so that i might even be interested in writing something further on it it's and it's hard to necessarily talk about i think i mentioned the themes masculine and feminine have almost gone out of favor in our culture yeah. but i feel like bringing them in is important and there has always been this balance whether you call it yin yang or whatever words you use there's always been these like opposing energies that somehow need to find balance. And so when I talk about the archetypal, I'm talking about those, um, those energies. And, and I'm also talking about how my perception is that in our world, uh, the dominant culture part of our world, the masculine, the toxic masculine, which I, which I think I name later as um, like a violence towards women, um, seeking money, you know, like aggression, um, defining yourself in those kinds of terms, but, um, like there's, there's a way that there's a, I think there's a healthy masculine and feminine energy, both. I just want to say that mm -hmm. sometimes people don't think that they think, oh, the masculine energy is the unhealthy and the feminine is the healthy. And that's not what I'm saying at all. Right. There is like a sacred masculine, sacred feminine energy in the world. And they want to be in, in a holy matrimony, you know, like way of honoring each other relationship in us archetypally in the world. And there's also can be toxic masculine, toxic feminine presences as well, which mm -hmm. I think are quite, quite common in our dominant culture. And there's certain qualities I allot to that. And whatever your sex or gender, a person can take on these qualities. Um, and right. archetypally, we can see them in the universe, in, in the culture by just the way that, you know, we might see those different energies. So the, um, I do, and I do name pretty I do name qualities that I would put into each one. And I like to be a little bit lo loose or less structured with that. Cause I recognize that they have been named slightly differently by different people. So I'm not having a, like a hard, this is it and nothing mm -hmm. else, but a sense. But to me, the, the healthy feminine qualities are the, are very gestational. They're related to the womb energy, which is, you know, there's darkness and mystery and, and and things things are birthed. They're just like they sort of come together. Life comes together and is created mm. through there. In the same way that you know, when we receive visions, like if we're on a quest and we're listening and we're gestating on the earth and we're listening, we're getting visions to birth our own selves or our, our life. Mm. Um, if we're listening to our dreams, we might be getting visions also in that in that dark primordial space to to listen and birth those visions through us in the mm -hmm. world so there's this real quality of nurturance gestational listening uh all and most of the practices of wild yoga seem to me to have that sort of feminine quality we just said listening mm -hmm. like yeah. not acting quickly like you know 
our actions come from this place of listening. And that's, and then I consider the mat, the sacred masculine, um, an energy that's very um, protective and uh, also active. Like it take, it, it wants to take action on the visions. It wants to make them, you know, it one, it has a strength that wants to make them in the world. And so the, that's why this marriage between the capacity to listen and receive from these greater energies than just ourselves and then the capacity to actually kind of have the strength and ferocity like just put it Mm -hmm. out there and engage and and protect life and honor life yeah those go together well and there is some masculine energy i would say in i mean potential potentially energy that i would call feminine and masculine together energy not Mm -hmm. just masculine by itself but feral female ferocity you know the feral female is feminine, but the ferocity itself to me reminds me of that masculine protection and action energy, kind of a warrior-esque kind of energy, mm. a healthy warrior-esque energy. And then the um, love warriors for the earth also has an energy too around um, caring and protecting the world and, and wanting to act mm. on behalf in that way from, from all the visions that have come. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, um, quite touching, um, and powerful what you're saying. And even the, even the sort of juxtaposition of love and warrior together is, uh, an interesting dynamic. And, and I think like something I, I feel in, in reading this book and, and in engaging in practices like this is, I mean, we can't, if you just think about the masculine to use your language as a kind of protector at times, you can't protect really what you don't love, what you're not in love with. And, you know, if you, if, if you don't have a relationship with your own body and your own vulnerability and your own heart, much less the heart vulnerability and supple and um, nuanced earth body itself, you know, I mean, you can't, I mean, this is probably one of the great uh, challenges that we face in <laughs> as human beings on the earth right now. I mean, just in terms of we can't protect what we don't love, what we're not in love with. There's there, You can try to protect, but it's it doesn't come from that sort of deep, deeply human and um, meaningful place, something like that. Um, yeah. And uh what else do I want to ask you about? About I, I wanted to ask you more about the feral, uh, what do you call it? The feral female ferocity, which is a chapter in here. Can you say just a little bit more about that? By the way, when I read that title and I started reading that chapter, um, I, I have three children and all three of them were born at home. And that is uh, an initiatory kind of experience, even for, for, for a man, for uh, for me. And um, I remember sort of be, being confronted with what I called the primal power. That was the, the language I had. I was like, what is this? What is this primal, fierce, loving, powerful, transpersonal energy that's at work here? It's like, it's in my wife and not in my wife and in the child and not in the child. And it's like, um, yeah, talk about having a limited view of the world and or talk about thinking you're in control, you know, or that you know what you're doing, just being in the room where birth is happening and all those kind of illusions sort of dissolve. So it was just bringing me back to 
you know, just hearing the feral female ferocity, I was like, oh yeah, what? I think I've, I've tasted a little bit of this. Um, anyway, so maybe you want to say what's in the chapter and take it from there. Mm, well, yeah, I love, I love feeling into what your definition of it is. And I like that it, it isn't even a definition per se, but an experience, an embodied living experience and moment that you had in your life. Um, it's beautiful hmm. and mysterious. Totally, totally mysterious. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what is the feral uh, feminine ferocity and how would we, how would anyone um, cultivate such a thing? Well, first, I think it's it's an honoring of our feelings, even our like anger or fierce feelings. Sometimes when I work with people, uh, especially I've noticed with women, but it could happen with anyone. There's a way there's a way we might judge our fierce or angry feelings like, oh, gosh, I shouldn't I shouldn't feel this way. I should be more peaceful. Um, but honoring that the ferocity can be a communication from our bodies, from our hearts, just like and just like love, just like any other feelings that we get. Uh, and it's also honoring that there's a, there's an aspect to protection. Sometimes protection too, is also viewed as, well, that's a, a limited part. It's like the caveman brain, right? Mm -hmm. Protecting. Um, but there's actually an aspect to protecting that is so vital and actually missing in our world and missing in us. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, I, I consider ferocity, feral female ferocity, part of wholeness and even though i call it feral female ferocity i i mean to call it in for men and women like mm -hmm. we all can have fem feral female ferocity and i like to just distinguish it uh, in a way of calling it feral and female rather than just ferocity because sometimes the the toxic masculine anger is viewed as like that is ferocity it's this sort of violent acting out or or taking you know raping women or taking mm -hmm. from the earth um, and, you know, I want to honor that there is a way that there is a kind of um, anger and violence that is really unhealthy in our world and, and still quite prevalent. But there is also a way that there's a there's a healthy ferocity that seems to be missing or, or lacking from a lot of our in our in our culture a lot and also just an honoring of that. And it's it's an energy that protects and doesn't acknowledge the structural hierarchy of our culture, which tries to put things into order. Like some people can do whatever they want, commit crimes or be violent. And other people can, um, you know, like other people when they're violated, they just have to like quietly walk out of the room and not say anything because um, they're mm -hmm. like lower on the hierarchy. But um, a sense of that natural ability in all of us as animal bodies to protect ourselves and to protect what we love. Mm -hmm. Um, it's often it's often actually indigenous people that protect land base. Most of the people who protect land base, who in the cultural hierarchy are often considered or put in a, a lower place or in an economic stratosphere that are often considered. Yeah. And yet they're the most fierce protectors of the earth. So so thank God for them. And what if we all, whatever whatever our status or or rank in the culture, just didn't buy into all of that? but honored ourselves, And it does start with honoring ourselves because if we're being violated personally, uh, then we're not going to be able to be much help to mm -hmm. the world or those around us. So it's being able to have personal protection and boundaries and honor them. And, and also to, to do that with who and what we love, which I include not only our family and friends, um, human, but our family and friends, the beings on the, on the planet earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. 
um, yeah, I was just reminded of, you know, even our, our indigenous uh, brothers and sisters here from this land mass, uh, that's they like with the water, um, they call themselves uh, water protectors, which is just a interesting way of just affirming what you're saying. There's a kind of fierce protection of the vitality of life that is embodied. Um, yeah. So, um, I, I want to ask you a little bit about grief because it, there's also a, a thread of, of grief and, um, sort of running, running through, especially in the, in the opening chapters. And so what is it, what is the, our relationship with grief and what is, what is it that grief, um, is opening in us and what's, what's the, what's the invitation, something like that. Well, you know, grief is a uh, grief happens also when we love just like it's like all this is coming out of love, you know, ferocity comes out of love grief comes out of love when, when we love we have a desire to care for and protect and when we love we, we lose, you know, sometimes we can't, you know, ultimately, everything we love will die. And mm. sometimes unfairly or unjustly or too soon. Um, and when we love and we open our hearts, then we open our hearts to grief. And if we let ourselves love the natural world fully, part of that is grief. I talk about earth grief and some of that might be feeling the feelings of the earth coming up through us. It might not be all us. And again, I like ferocity. I just want to bring it back to sometimes also grief can be viewed as bad. Like, Oh gosh, I should just get over it. And be over it and you know be fine but mm -hmm. you know no actually no like the older we get the more people we love that we lose so there's a part of us our heart which might always be broken mm -hmm. for those we love and have lost um that mm -hmm. always feel this they're missing from you know they're in us and they're, they're missing too and if we love the earth then in these times it seems like that's to allow ourselves to feel the grief which does open us, open us up, I think, to possible messages and visions. You know, there's a way that our grief is, can be like a portal too. It just, it really alters us just like fasting can. Mm. The ego can't quite find its way and it's normal operating if we've really given into grief. And there can be visions that come just from allowing us to go through this kind of emotional portal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On my very first animus program, which was a wild mind program, um, I sort of stumbled into a kind of grief portal without looking for it. And it so um, undid my life, like sort of just pulled the rug out from under my own concepts of what was important and meaningful and who I was. And what I said at the time, well, I remember my wife asked me, well, what, what happened? And I said, well, I did a lot of crying. And she said, well, about what? And I said, I don't know, really. <laughs> I really did not know. It was like, it was personal and not personal. And maybe I would say part of what was what I was grieving was this kind of feeling of an unlived life. But I certainly didn't have words like that at the time. It was like, I don't know. And I was almost embarrassed in a way. And it kind of, um, it almost gave me some pause. Like, do I really want to continue? Do I really want to? consent 
to more of this? Why not, why not do some happy practices and where it's all light and, you know, union and, um, but I don't know, but there was also something very tasty about it. It's like, um, to even to taste your own tears and to feel them falling on the ground and, um, to feel the way in which the, the earth itself seems to, um, breathe in our grief as we're crying out and there's a kind of exchange and it's like very potent. At least that's my feeling, even if it's not, if we're not even sure what's happening, you know? So, um, and that's what I find so interesting about your book too, wild yoga. Like what, what is it that you're inviting us into and, uh, sort of subtly and not so subtly. And, um, maybe this would be a point for me to just ask, well, what, what's the scope of this book? Like, um, how, how do you frame, how, how do you frame it? Like, what's the, it's the sort of meta story that's kind of unfolding just to give people a sense for it. Mm-hmm. Great, great questions. Yeah. Thanks for sharing too about your, your own grief. And I think that makes sense. The idea of crying and not knowing, you know, that's being in the portal and the mystery of our bodies and emotions, like just allowing ourselves to feel what we feel and trying to stay curious to discover as much as we can about it without, without being sure, you know, necessarily. Um, so the scope, the book is, the book is a book of practices. I don't call it a model per se. It's a book of practices in that it, I think it is nice to read the chapters in progression because they do build on one another, mm-hmm. but you could also just read one of the chapters or skip to the tra- chapters of certain practices that interested you most. Uh, and so I'm, I'm inviting people on practices and also I'm suggesting that there can be a steep learning curve. And if people are dealing with a lot of trauma or emotions, you know, you might want to stay in the first few chapters where there's a lot of resourcing and connecting activities. And before moving on to the more, some of the more challenging chapters, it's kind of like challenge at your own risk. In mm-hmm. other words, it might not be everybody that wants to fall into their grief or maybe, <laughs> They can only, you know, touch into it for a minute or two. There's a, there's a great success with doing that if you've never, never done it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, you know, there's a kind of an invitation, like I'm kind of saying, these are the important places to go and here's how to do it. Mm-hmm. And each person kind of has to decide, can I do that now? Do I need some more support to go there? Uh mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's not that I'm presenting a model necessarily, but um, it's more like a pathway, Mm. Uh, like a pathway where I'm saying, hey, we need to rewild ourselves and here's how we can do it. Here's these six chapters in the beginning all are all ways we can, you know, become our more wild self into our live into our true nature and listen to the wild and dreams, our bodies, our hearts. And the second part of the book is kind of highlighting the spirit and the soul journey probably with a greater emphasis on the soul journey because that's more what i have some training in but Mm -hmm. with touching into aspects of the spirit journey and even connecting with ancestors and just naming that both are really valuable sources Mm -hmm. and even ending with that play my part in the symphony because my idea is that when we're connected to soul and spirit that we're we're playing our note which is soul Mm -hmm. and we're in the symphony so we can hear the the spirit of the whole world and where and how my part plays in it Hmm. so it's a very and it's a very sacred you know transpersonal journey there in that second part Mm -hmm. and um and we continue staying accessed in in that in those transpersonal 
um, energies and powers and relationships that we've encountered in the third part, but our focus shifts a bit, which I think it often does on the journey. Sometimes I could say in my own life, I was so hungry for soul and spirit in my early life and probably most of my life that I wasn't really thinking a lot about, well, what's this give back to the world? I was just so in love with soul and mystery. I just wanted to be with it. And I wanted to honor it. And I wanted to, to do things that supported it and to support other, bringing other people into honoring it. And I still love that. And yet there's been this other kind of focus that's come later in life for me. Some people, I think it comes earlier, but it's about giving back. Like how can, how does the spirit and the soul journey and all the personal work that I've done and all these listening and these relationships that I've developed how does it really bring us into this time on this planet, into this culture, into these everyday human relationships? And how do we meet the challenges of our time and engage? Mm-hmm. And I start still with love because I really believe that's where everything starts by the wild arrows chapter and like mm-hmm. with our bodies, loving, loving the earth and knowing what it is to like fully love and, and what might be an addiction or pulling us away from real love, sucking our senses away. Mm-hmm. And then, and then go into, um, you know, practices that still involve listening, but like um, prayer, prayers in the dark, you know, for the world and mm-hmm. radical dream work for the world and um, love warriors for the world, but bringing it back to stretch our consciousness too. Cause to me, stretch our consciousness is really at the core of wild yoga. I mean, we're just, and I'm and by that naming that chapter there, I'm just saying, we're not done stretching our consciousness. We've stretched it so far in this book in so many ways. And and where's the limit? You know, there might not be one. There's still so much in the shadow and so much we don't know. And how can we open collectively to the idea of all the things that we can't see and don't know as well as individually? Yeah. All kinds of little threads I want to tug on here. Um, But I think just because words like soul and spirit are used in a variety of ways. What do you mean? What do you mean about, um, what do you mean by soul? What do you mean by spirit? And what's the dynamic between these two realms? Well, um, it's a complex topic and I'm going to try to answer it simply uh, just to give people a sense of it. And we can, we can get more complex as you might, as you might want, if you want, but the, to me, soul is, is, there is a soul, a world soul and a soul of the world. So there is something that can be all encompassing, but we have our soul, our um, individual souls, which are also connected to the world soul. And we are, um, but we, to have a soul encounter and understand who we are is, is the soul is more about our individual note or song or what we might call mythopoetics. We might access it through the mythopoetic imagination you know, where we are opening to the visions or dreams of like the purpose of why, why did this being, why did I come here? And what is my, uh, my myth, my wild mythic uh, home? You know, Mm -hmm. where do I inhabit that through those relationships of, you know, that are directly related to my being, um, what am I supposed to be and live and do in the world like where what are the vehicles or relationships or places i'm going to connect up to try to bring this vision that i've got alive into the world about who i'm called to be while i'm here yeah and like as if you're a note in a symphony like you're saying Mm -hmm. yeah and learning to to sing that note and be that note and um 
and be be shaped by that note, something like that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm with you so far. I mean, we could we could. I'll just I'll let that one go. But it's it's good to it's good I think to to attempt to say simply. Although you you that wasn't actually such a simple definition. There were several uh, branches on the tree there. So, and what would you say about spirit? Spirit is um to me the the totality it's i i love i love john muir's statement it comes to me when we pick up any one thing in the world it's hitched to everything else Mm -hmm. and so spirit really helps us feel our connection to everything but it's even and to me spirit the the world the earth is imbued with spirit it's not i don't see nature as just physical or just science it's it's an alive it's a it's an alive spirit energy but the spirit also can go beyond, um, I, you know, one word that uh, was used in uh, Tibetan Buddhist meditation training I studied was the totality. And that's sort of what I feel in the spirit mm-hmm. is the totality. And it might even be emptiness or or worlds or spaces, I don't know, but it kind of encompasses um, the, the, the a, a power or energy that is all, all of it. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes I I like to use the word reality, but with a capital R. That, and that's sort of like saying the totality. The totality that is, it's not static, um, but is a a kind of, uh, uh, yeah, a, a kind of. Well, now now I'm thinking about um, emptiness and void and abyss and presence and everything that is and and perhaps everything that isn't. Yeah, in other words, words like. God were pointers to to such things, I think. Um, yeah, so um, you know, th- this is kind of a I don't know if this is how relevant this is to to your book, so I'm not sure what you might say about it, but another way I was wondering about uh, about relationship and listening, which is how I first, which I think is 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 right on. That's that's the that's the call. That's the task. That's what your book is trying to invite us into—a kind of listening and a kind of relationship. Another word for that is is prayer. I think. Um, do you do you view this way of being, this wild yoga way of being, as a kind of prayer, as a kind of living way of praying? And and I I don't when I say prayer, I kind of mean um, it as a way of being, or even as a kind of posture in the world. Um, do you resonate with the word prayer? Um, yeah, you know, that's, uh, one of my soul names. That's, you know, my, my soul name, wild love prayer. So the fact that you see wild yoga as prayer, I'm just cheering because I haven't heard that reflection before, but mm. I am cheering. Cause you know, the challenges of living, we can get a soul vision or name or purpose. And, and sometimes it can always be wondering, gosh, am I, am I doing it? Am I, Am I living, you know, what I'm here to live? And so when you reflect that back, it's like, yeah, that's absolutely. That's mm-hmm. at the core. My book and wild yoga are a prayer for the world, a prayer for each of us and a prayer, mm-hmm. prayer for the world. And it's an invitation into a way of being and living and practicing that creates our life as, as an engaged prayer with ourselves mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah. Mm, awesome. Yeah. Um, and this is, I mean, just to put some of my cards on the table, this is a, a word that has been working me for a while. You know, it's like something I resist, I think, because I grew up in a, a pretty Christian uh, fundamentalist environment and prayer was kind of like, uh, 
kind of like putting the right coins in the vending machine and getting answers from God or favors or, you know, whatever. And uh, my resistance to that was pretty old. Like, I mean, going back to childhood, that just made me uncomfortable. I remember when I was a little kid sort of praying to see if God would turn the lights off, you know, like, is this magic? You know, is that how it works? And being sort of disappointed that, oh, I guess I prayed earnestly. God didn't turn the lights off. So it must not be that. It must not be that kind of exchange. And so I guess I've had some resistance to it, but I think um, my own softening over the last few years and my own, as as the book um, invites people into, my own wanderings in nature-oriented practices have turned less into practices and more into prayers. That's what I'd say, more into, uh, T.S. Eliot has this like amazing and haunting line where he says, um, kneel, kneel where prayer has been valid. I'm like, oh, what? And I don't even know what he means by that. Kneel where prayer has been valid. But so it's not something we necessarily have to invent, you know, my own ego is going to invent, but um, it's like a kind of uh, consent to a sort of ancient way of alignment, maybe I would say, an ancient way of alignment. And I can feel that in the background of of your own story here, your own realigning in a in a and a body and a and um a 21 year old body that was out of alignment in a way and and just a falling back into alignment and and you're sort of just inviting us back into that it, it seems to me um yeah so let me i want to actually look at my notes to see if i asked you anything i wanted was planning on asking you um yeah i mean maybe um maybe i want to leave it to you here as we sort of close this conversation um is there some terrain that you feel like would be important for us to explore right now that might give people a taste. Um, you know, I could ask you about um, engaging in radical dreaming. This is near, near the end of the book, or even you could say some more things about love worry for the earth or, or there might be some other thread that you think, no, um, let's, let's pull on that. What, what, what are you feeling in this moment? Well, I love the, the questions that you've asked about prayer and the different pieces that you've pulled in that were new ways of thinking and seeing about the book. That's a wonderful thing. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, I guess one of the major pieces in yoga has been the the place between um, uh, prayer or spiritual life and, and action. They call it contemplation and action, you know, yeah, we're yeah, often put good. together and and my book has, I think, brought those together because you know that oftentimes there's a thought that if I'm in prayer, that I'm not in the world, you know, mm -hmm. that I have to be disengaged and separate in some way from maybe even from my own body in some cases, or certainly from, you know, politics or or the rest mm -hmm. of the world. And, um, and, and, and I honor that truth. That's true. Sometimes there's places and moments in the journey where we do need to separate from the everyday world or our everyday sense of self and perhaps be alone. That's kind of what a quest is, a solo. I, it's, I don't like to call it a solo actually totally because we're not totally alone. The natural world's all around us, but it's a, solo no from, it's a solo from other humans and you have a great community all around you. To the ego is on, the ego's on solo. Everything else is plugged in. <laughs> yeah. That's great. I love that. Perfect. And so I honor that that's part of it, but 
prayer, part of prayer to me is, and I think it's been linked up sometimes with service and I use the words mm. creative service, but action. And, and that's a little bit what I think my book moves between in is some of those ideas of, of contemplation, or we might, we might call it listening and then acting, um, acting on what we receive, you know, yeah. not, not being in, in a hurry to, to act, um, or, you know, come up with the answer when we don't know it, being able to hang out in, in steep in the unknowing. But when we do understand something, when we know like, oh, wow, yeah, this, then we also have the courage that it takes and how it works us in many ways to, to take action on that. And, in in my whole book i'm moving towards that in the last chapters that you that you bring up um radical dreaming and love warriors for the earth um involve some level of of action even uh, radical dreaming is might be especially good if you've already had a bit of a dreaming practice and you're mm -hmm. used to listening to your dreams and and engaging for you know your own calling and, and direction um, but it's turning it towards the idea that we can dream for the world, that we can actually dream about our collective actions that we might mm. want to take as well as our individual actions. And that we can ask particular questions about the world because of our love and care for the world. You know, like what I like to ask about sometimes is how can we protect species and ecosystems? I'm, it breaks my heart every day that mm. they're dying. And one of the things that I broach in that, in that, uh, chapters i i mean i think the environmental movement is failing mm -hmm. if we measure the environmental movement by what's happening to the earth and and the amount of lands and species being harmed mm -hmm. we're, we're failing and and there's a lot of green movements that aren't necessarily um that don't necessarily help the earth sometimes they're consumer movements green consumer yeah, movements no like, kidding yeah um, you can buy you can you can consume your way into being saving the world at this point right yeah. And, and, and somehow that's, you know, that's not accurate because if we're consuming something, whatever, however great of a new product it is, whether it's a electric car or solar power or whatever it is, it's, mm -hmm. you know, all of that took a level of consumption um, and mining and uh, labor. Yeah. And uh, so it's understanding that, you know, helping the earth is somehow coming up with ideas and plans that actually, to me, that actually stop the harm of species and lands and potentially even restore ones that have been destroyed and bring them back like like it is like has been done on the Elwell River or different ecosystems that were once damned or harmed and and now we can we know a way to bring life back mm -hmm. so if we look at it if we look at that and that's our that's what we're shooting for what how can i how can i dream and ask the dream maker to give me visions like i don't know how to make that happen like how mm -hmm. does that how can i make that happen what i'm kind of overwhelmed like what can what can one person do where should i focus mm -hmm. and dreaming and asking and for a step. And so that's where radical dreaming takes us. And you might have different questions than, than I do, but somehow it's about considering radical means like, like at the root, root big yeah, change at, yeah. at, at the big, at the big, at like big changes in the world. It's not mm -hmm. like minor, minor little tweaks. It's actually saying yeah. no, like culture needs a major overhaul. It needs to come down as it is and, and be recreated you know, in something that is sustainable, your humans need to create a way of life, some way of life that, that is true, that is truly in alignment with Earth's living systems. Yeah. And I don't know that we've come up with the total answer for that. There, there are some good, there are some good ideas out there, but, but we also, we also aren't acting on what we know. And that's where Love Warriors comes in. 
Mm-hmm. It's like there are some things we, you know, there's a lot we don't understand and let's stay steeped in the mystery. Right. Sure. And keep asking for help. But also there are some things that we, that are clear, you know, like, like let's not cut down any more forests, um, mm-hmm. especially old growth forests. How about that? Like that, um, I mean, if we're trying to talk about climate change, like if we're cutting down an old, old growth forest, that's like the worst thing we can do for the climate since that's mm-hmm. actually giving us most of the value of what's healthy for the climate as well as just what the ecosystem provides. So if there's some things that we understand, how do we get the ferocity around actually saying, no, like Mm -hmm. this can't go on. And how do we engage in a way where we stand up for those we love? And I like to, you know, some people like, whoa, this is like super overwhelming. That's why it's the last chapter. You know, Mm -hmm. I I recognize it takes a lot of energy to, to get there. Uh, And you know, some people don't like the word saving even. And I, you know, and I've brought in a different piece, like as a cancer survivor, the odds were not in my favor Mm -hmm. uh, that I would live. And so Mm -hmm. my loved ones could have said, well, she's probably not going to make it. So why spend all this money (laughs) on this chemotherapy and and go through this thing when we're ultimately just probably going to fail? Let's just roll her over and call it good. Yeah, yeah. um, sometimes it seems like people have that attitude with the earth. Well, they I do. think we, yeah. we've already done enough damage and it's already, we're already in a trajectory that's too late. So let's, you know, we don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. And I try to, I take a bit of a different stance and it's that, you know, we don't know the future. Mm-hmm. The, the science definitely doesn't look good and it's worth looking at, mm-hmm. but we don't know the future. The future is a mystery in any way. Our right relationship with the earth today isn't about totally all about the outcome or the future. It's about today. And part of right relationship is, is standing up for who and what we love and what we know is, is good, healthy for the world and what we know isn't. And I kind of link human health and well-being with the earth's well-being, like um, our own souls and our own physical health is going to always be compromised on some level to me mm-hmm. as well as the earth is not well physically mm-hmm. is being hurt so if we care about the individual that ultimately means caring about the whole planet too yeah yeah and i can hear in the background of what you're saying a kind of like i guess this would be my way of putting it and a sort of like eternal upwelling of spirit, or maybe you would use the word love or energy that is essential for sustaining us and even facing these questions. I mean, I think that kind of like, um, we can't do anything or it's opposite that, that we can save everything. I mean, both of those, like they're not being fed. Both of those postures aren't being fed by, by the deep mysteries and I think what's powerful about your about your book is that um, is f- sort of from the from the start to to the end, you're inviting in these like um, transpersonal, deep, mysterious resources that are available to us as human beings. That that is it's our birthright in a way. This kind of relational, um, we are the earth. I mean, we still have this kind of like um, natural world. Like I'm gonna go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out to wild places as if, it, as if that's something other than also our own bodies, which are which are their own unique wild places. But anyway, my main point was, yeah, I don't think we can engage in in the biggest 
questions that that we're facing as human beings without the this kind of river without this flow of resources and possibilities and mysteries and and openings and um and gifts and and darkness and challenge and all all, all of it mixed in we don't have to um you know it's we're not lone what's the what's the we're not lone rangers out here um but yeah maybe i'll just pause there so um yeah um okay i just i want to be respectful of your time and and uh and i'm feeling like we covered some interesting and i hope life-giving terrain here and i hope there you know listeners heard little seeds they'll buy your book and and start and if or maybe start would be unfair i'm sure everyone is, has already started in their own way that's would might bump in a podcast like this bump into a podcast like this but um maybe i'll start with practical things how can people get your book how can people be connected to the things that you're up to and and the work that you're up to mm-hmm. um yeah and uh well my website rebeccawildbear.com is a way to see what i'm up to see what's going on see about the book and also you get my email and phone number and contact information if you want to reach out so there's also some wild yoga programs coming up you'll see on my website and i also work with animus valley institute i have a link connecting my website to animus's website but you could see programs that i'm offering there as well so those be some good ways yeah and buy the book is there a way that a preferred way that that you like to encourage people to buy the book or not so much no, I always suggest local bookstores can be a good way to go. It's in a lot of local bookstores or there's uh, some different, uh, I think on my website, I have some different ways you could, different links. You can go to the publisher itself, mm-hmm. New World Library or Barnes and Noble or some indie pub- publishers or Amazon. So I have just some different possible online ones. I do also say people could email me and write for me to sign a book and send it to them. But uh, the shipping costs have gone way up and yeah. So there, it's it's quite expensive to do it that way. So you'd probably have to really want my signature in the book <laughs> to, to do that, rather than just order it online. And I'm fine with, I'm happy with people to order books whatever way that is good for you, and happy for you to read it, and love to hear what you think. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. It was lovely talking with you. Yeah, lovely to talk to you too. Thank you. <laughs>